So what, right before we hit record, we got text information. Great news. Uh, the Alamo is going to be opening next week. And uh, Alamo Draft House is one of the best theaters in the country. And they're opening the biggest one in Springfield for reasons that are beyond me. But I dare not look this gift horse in the mouth. Amen. Uh, so let's give a cheers to movie theaters that don't just do eight screenings of the new superhero movie. Mm-hmm. They will give you like weird midnight showings and innovative programming and bizarre Beer. shit. Because yeah. they are vital to the uh, intellectual discourse of our age. Amen. <laughs> Hey, I'm Caleb, and welcome to Mix Six. I'm Spencer. Spencer's over there, Hi. and we are uh, doing our podcast where we have six random conversations, and we rate six beers. But our six beers are rated on a five-point system, which fluctuates in every episode. That's a lot of numbers. Yeah, we got it's it's math. We're really for the intellectual, the intelligentsia, if you will. If of, you will. Um, so uh, my five-point rating system this time in the pre-party, because we don't have any news to talk about other than our new rating system. That's right. Is going to be something that Sarah demanded I pick. Damn. And uh, it is uh, a good demand because it's a Madonna song. Dude, list. you know I'm going to get in trouble now because Brandy's going to be like, I made, I asked you for rating systems and I was like, girl. Goosebumps. Oh, that was her. But we didn't use Goosebumps because. But we, we kept... reused it later. Did we? Yeah, we reused it. Oh, we man. saved Goosebumps after the episode nine that was not. Never mind. Uh, so you're safe. You're safe. You're good. Cool, but cool, Brandy's cool. going to have to. You know, do another one. Free pass. Luckily, we've really established an arms race at this point. She doesn't really listen to this podcast, uh, so which is great. uh, So she's not even going to (laughs) know. All right, living with humans, just dishing on our wives. Anyway, uh, so my Madonna song rating system: Mm -hmm. a number one, which is a beer you would never want to drink again, and you want to stop uh, the minute you put it in your mouth, uh, is going to be a ray of light from 1998. And this is the beginning of the end, right? It's when late Madonna goes from milf to gilf to something else. Wow. It's that terrible video where she's just like walking on a road and it's awful. It's not good at all. Um, number two is going to be hung up. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's surprising to me. It's it's good, but it's like a little too self aware of its club anthem area. She seems it's a little too self referential hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not into it. Uh, it seems to know what it's doing a little too much to be authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, three is Vogue. Sure, only narrowly beats out uh, Express Yourself. For a positive message, right? Uh, but you know, you can't have Madonna without Vogue. I was going to say it, f- it feels like the banner Madonna song. Yes, right? like that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, four for me is Lucky Star. God, this is a deep cut. It feels it is. It is peak camp synth. Like I, I don't listen to Madonna without wanting to hear a guitar. And by God, it is in mm. fucking Lucky Star mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. front to back. Uh, its inclusion in the movie uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoky Barrels is brilliant. Uh, I, I, I I love Lockie Star. Uh, I didn't see this coming. I'm going to be honest It's a solid pick. Like and the then uh, five, a beer that you want more of all the time Changes forever, is a Like a Prayer for the orchestration alone. You've got a gospel choir. It's, you've got the same campy synth from before. It's a fusion of everything you want from Madonna. Uh, it is it is pop gold. It's also the most epic music video she's ever done. I exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. It's it's a feast for the senses, <laughs> much like a beer that would be rated for number five. I want to talk about something. Okay. 
I can't help but notice that in the five Madonna songs you've listed, none of them is like a virgin. It's intentional. Okay. So some some months ago, I was proverbially raked over the coals for having left Pulp Fiction <laughs> out of a rating system. What seems like quintessential Quentin Tarantino. And you, sir, in that moment, treated me as a grunt. What, okay, what was your explanation for leaving it out? I don't remember, Caleb. I was you didn't then, have one, and exactly. I'm drunk now. I've revisited the episode. I think, I've I, listened to it multiple times. You didn't have one. I have a reason <laughs> for leaving Like a Virgin off. If I remember correctly, the explanation, which is pretty good, was that it was so obvious as to put Pulp Fiction on a Quentin Tarantino list. You realize be, they have the episodes and they can re-listen to him, not hear nah, this explanation, I don't explanation, think that's how right? podcasts work. We have the tapes. No. <laughs> the tapes exist. No. <laughs> Yeah. No, this Look, is. Are you tweeting about like it? A this virgin, is more of a Comey situation. Like a Virgin <laughs> is the creepy sexual side of Madonna, which I left off ideologically. All of Madonna is creepy sexual. It is, but it's creepy sexual in the liberating sense. I don't think Like a Virgin is liberating. Like, you know, Vogue, Be Who You Are, Man or Woman are in between. Like, literally, lyrics in the song, it's sex positive. Like a Virgin is like creepy patriarchy grossness. Child marriage. Yeah, child marriage grossness. And it's also one of her very first songs. So, like, if that's what she has to do to break into the industry, go you, Madonna. We we need you. We need your music in the general culture conversation. But uh, while I enjoy the song, I'm not going to, like, turn off Like a Virgin when it's on. It's not going to be on my top five because it's not part of the canon. You know it's what? not part of moving it forward. I, I have an explanation. You can disagree with my explanation, but I at least have one. I want to. I want to make a, a not so insincere plea to the <laughs> listeners of this podcast. As someone who has lived now for months with with the cloud of both s'mores and Quentin Tarantino <laughs> hanging over me, dear God, please take Caleb to task on this. Okay? It is in your hands now. Well, it's really for the people to decide now, and I'm comfortable with that. I like it when you guys pregame before the show, because, man, look at this. Yeah, this is... well, <laughs> we pregamed before the pregame, yeah. so brutal. Well, okay, if that's your shit list above Madonna songs, uh, then I guess we're ready to start rating beers, so let's grab some beers and we'll get, out, we'll, we'll get into something else next. Spencer, what are you drinking? This is a game changer, Caleb. This is from Crooked Stave in Denver, which was a brewery on our tour list that we didn't visit when I was in Denver last week. I have been there. Okay. It's a lovely brewery. Cool. Rub it in more. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Labrette de Raspberry. There's probably some more French in there, but I don't mm-hmm. want to be offensive to our French listeners. It's a golden sour ale aged in oak barrels with raspberries. And I'm going to shoot straight. It's one of the finest beers I've ever consumed. It's a solid five. Like a prayer? If there was a six on the list, which would be like a virgin, <laughs> it would be a six, motherfucker. Okay? I mean, that means something coming from you. You're stingy with the fives. I'm pretty stingy with the fives. Yeah. And it's pretty fucking excellent. Nice. So while I, consume, while I consume this like a virgin of a beer, <laughs> what are we going to talk about? Uh, I am going to talk about, hopefully with you, if you can get past chugging that beer, uh, dissecting our fun, in that we noticed something weird amongst our board game collection, at least, but maybe at large. And There's a theme here. I kinda, I'm kinda, This is investigative for me. I want to hear feedback Amen. on this, because I don't know if this is like a selection bias thing or what else. Right. But I've noticed that there is a weird, like uncommonly uh, fixation 
on uh, science as themes for board games. It's crazy. And we own a dozen of them. There's oh. dozens more we don't own yet. A literal fuck ton. And it might be the most common theme for board games, like outside of like obvious stuff right. that appeals to nerds. Lord like, of the Rings. I understand like zombies or right. Lord of the Rings or fantasy general stuff. But like the hard science stuff, is that part of it? Is that weird? Uh, but so help me out on this. Yeah. I, 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 I am very much coming at this from an investigative, curious standpoint. I don't Absolutely. have a statement on this. Right. But you brought up the topic. So what do you think? I did. So, so we have been playing just, as you said, a ton of science-based games lately. And so I'm interested in finding out two things here in the course of this conversation. And probably, to your point, even more interested in getting feedback from other people about what they're playing in this realm and why they're playing it. So two questions I really want us to address here in dissecting our fun, our board game topic. One is... What makes a science-based game successful or unsuccessful for you? And what of the litany of science-based games that we've played recently? I mean, just just on kind of quick glance, I think I listed seven or eight that we've played in the last couple of weeks. I've added more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is your favorite of the science games and why? So let's, let's take that first question first. Uh, what makes a science game successful or unsuccessful for you? So, um, I think we should probably talk about the games we're talking about. Sure, yep. First, uh, so we're talking about games like, uh, with explicit scientific themes, like Compounded, in which you are literally trying to create the chemical symbols for various, like, you know, um, potassium. Right. Like, you know, you're trying to add, you're trying to combine these different elements into chemical uh, symbols, of which some are flammable. Which are the actual flammable ones, yeah, and those will have game effects and stuff like that. So, right. like, that's more hard science, right? Whereas you're doing something that is very scientific in theme, like yeah. potion explosion, yeah. mixing certain proponent, certain a- proportions of things, antidote, right? In which you're trying to find an antidote, but it's really just a deduction game, right? So here's our here's our not so comprehensive list that we came up with of science based games we've played in just the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Alchemist, which mm-hmm. we've talked about at length. Potion Explosion, which, if I remember correctly, is the first subject of Dissecting Our Fun on this podcast. Yes. Episode one. Antidote, which we've been playing a lot of lately. Compounded. Nefarious. Pandemic, which I think is a little bit of a stretch, but not too out of the realm. Nefar. And then Mad Scientist University and which Mad is Scientist a, Foundation. And here's the thing. Mad, Fi- Mad Scientist University is a storytelling game. Mad Scientist Foundation is a backstabbing resource management game where you're trying to get funding for Mad Science. Jesus, it's it it goes it goes so much deeper than that. I don't know. We're not even close no, to the no. comprehensive list of science as a theme. So um, that's the thing. So you came at this from sort of like a, which do I like best? Um, what makes it work? Doesn't what work. makes it work? Doesn't work. I'm concerned about the psychology of this. Sure. So um, we pick science as a theme. Is that something with the game mechanics? Do like game designers and game mechanics inherently invoke the rhetorical concept of science? Right. And that's why the theme comes up because like it's not science. We're not doing science at no. the game table, but it it invokes the cultural mass idea of science. Is it just that you and I like science, and so we buy a lot of these games? Right. So is it a selection bias thing? I'm fully acknowledging that. Uh, or is it like a marketing ploy? Do these marketers see something like, well, nerd, dweebs love 
high school chemistry class. So, like, make your card game chemistry based, and yeah. they'll buy it. Like, right. I, I don't know where the I'm 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 more concerned about the abstraction that leads to the reification sure. of these science games from front to back on our fucking shelves. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know the answer. So I think I can. I think I can silver bullet you here a little bit. Okay. Uh, I was as bad at science in high school as you are at making Madonna themed rating lists. Okay. <laughs> You you wanted to have so what so you got bad. A's is that okay. what you're saying? Okay. 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 <laughs> yes, producer Ross. <laughs> Both of you can fuck off. <laughs> um, I, I was terrible at science, and I have I have the the closest equivalent to math and or science brain that one could have. Right? I see, I see hyper rational numbers, and I go, hmm, what? Who? Um, so for me, I don't think it's a market. I, I don't think that that is the impetus of the marketing thing. I don't see a science game and I go, oh, science game. I don't think, right? As much as I can be aware of my conscious decision to purchase games, I don't look for themes that are exclusively in the science realm to attack kind of the marketing or undermine some mm-hmm. of the marketing concern that you have. But I do think that there is something, a pattern that I'm learning. So it might be Pavlovian. Which is, I've played a lot of fucking science games that I like. And they're almost always good. Right. So it may not be a, ooh, science theme, I want that. But it may be a, ooh, science game, I've really liked a lot of science-based games. And so there may be something to the repetition of the theme that I'm starting to pick up as like, it's a reward center in my brain. These typically work really well. So that may be the psychology of why I'm just playing science games all the time now. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, though. Here's my question with the marketing thing. Right. I don't think we've put that to bed. Yeah. I was also pretty shit at science, even though I love science as a concept. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Is it appealing to the concept of science versus the actuality of science? Okay. Because I'm very much like in science class. Can we talk about fucking Dyson spheres right. up in here? And right. they're just like, no, we're going to make a paper mache volcano. I'm right. like, shit. Right. Bees it is. Here's I will do the bare fraud. minimum. Yeah. yeah. Here's a dead fraud. Like, is it, does it appeal? Is it like a marketing ploy to the concept of science? Right. I think I can answer that, too. So the question that I posed to start this conversation, mm-hmm. which you immediately ignored and then introduced other questions. I did do that, yeah. Right. Um, is an appeal to the, the kind of this idyllic concept of science with mm-hmm. which you could interact as the player. And no, I don't think so, because... I think for me, when science games don't work, it's the, it's because they confuse that the purpose of the game should be science as opposed to the purpose of the game should be a game that is science-y. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, Alchemist without the app would not be a game that I would play. No. Because it feels like at some point really difficult, intense Like science. work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like like a scientific... It feels ex- like work with the app. It does, but the app goes, I'll take most of the work out of this. Yeah. And to your point, if you're talking about my favorite science game, it's a game that's not technically science because it's alchemist. Right. Because the figuring out the chemical symbols of it and the deduction required to figure that out, I fucking love that mechanic so much. I hate that it takes so much to set up. Yeah. Even though I can't imagine doing it without all that setup. It's brutal. But I, 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 I get so excited right. doing the, like, there's a closet drama to games in yeah. which you kind of think of the strategy you're going to do without like explicitly talking to people at the table explicit human interaction and the closet drama of alchemist is as excited as i've ever been in sure. a game yeah, working yeah. through that grid work being like oh it can't be this this but i'm a guy who like likes logic puzzles and shit too so yeah. well yeah. i i think you 
can summarize it because the best science board games invoke are trying to invoke the same sense of eureka that actual science should. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, so okay, that's kind of interesting because for me, like the most successful science games are the ones that have, for all intents and purposes, a reasonably traditional mechanic. But they make the mechanic feel interesting or unique or novel because they've added a science element. So, so compounded, to be clear, yep. that I don't think a lot of people have played this. Right. You're drawing these little um, chits, and I love how like asymmetrical and, and weird they are. And tactile. Yeah. They're little sharp little pieces yeah. um, where they are basic elements, and you're, you're making a wide variety of chemicals based off combining the basic and it's yep. basically a resource management game that's what it is you're like can i draw more or can i place more right. or can i claim more so you can't place more yep or can i do and there's multiple win conditions and it's basically a resource management game that's all it is but um the fact that the resource management game is sort of couched in this actually research like that's the actual fucking chemical symbol yeah and it's actually fucking flammable and it's you know all that kind of stuff in there is really interesting to me that's right it, and it gets at the wishful fulfillment fantasy element of what it is you're talking about yeah. which is i'm not good at science but i like the idea of being a scientist yes right? yeah well, uh similarly yeah. pandemic is just fucking worker placement right i mean that's all it is it's worker alchemist is mainly worker placement that's right. aside from the deduction element that's right but they may literally have the manhattan project which is a worker placement game yes so. so he just brought out a science game that i've never seen before right. that he just had underneath his seat they're literally spawning right. in like places they, you're they not are currently the herpes looking. of board games yeah right you now. have a peripheral vision right now outside of it right. someone's making a science if game set, and it's currently in your home if you sat on a toilet seat in the last couple of weeks chances are you got a science game on you okay <laughs> yeah. and that's how i feel about it and but, so well i mean again i think that the main thing is that these board games are so successful is because they successfully invoke that feeling of eureka that right. ah, i've discovered yeah. i've deduced something yeah and that's why science I can't, is a I can't kind of see where he's coming from because antidote as a deduction yeah. game is strictly about that eureka i mean moment. Right. and that eureka yeah. moment is Elusive. We have had. It is hard to get. We have had more table eruptions, right? Moments where we all got it right or all got it wrong with Antidote than I can think of in any game. I mean, the four of us. But a super quick setup for a deduction game. Absolutely, right? I mean, that's kind of the nature of Antidote. It's just a deduction game. That's Mm -hmm. it, right? You're all looking at everybody's hand. You're all passing shit around. But at the end of the day, one of you is going to fucking figure out what what the thing you're trying to figure out is, and you're going to have the best play at it. But again, it's a super simple mechanic. It's just a deduction game. But, you know, Producer Ross, I think I think you're absolutely spot on. It's introduced this vocabulary that we revere in some way, which is the, the, the vocabulary of discovery that is implicit in science, and it's, and it's made it feel really nice. And I'll even give it to Potion Explosion, because you're looking for one reaction in that game. Yeah. But you're looking for the most complex way to arrange that singular reaction. That's right. Uh, and so I'll give it to that, too. I will say the science thing doesn't fail for me, but I feel like it's underutilized when you're doing things like um, Mad Scientist Foundation or Nefarious, yeah. where it is very much just like this idea of super science as a theme, yeah. which is great right. and very nerdy, and it's going to sell. Yeah. But it doesn't give you that sort of aha moment that he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think it's good. That sort of perception of science. Nefarious didn't play for me in some weird way. I mean, I liked the art. I, I, I liked the concept I don't just of like the game. the game. Right. Well, if you're playing Nefarious, I'll come over and we're going to play Nefarious. Sure. Yeah. But it did not have for me the same kind of... It's I not like Potion Explosion. It. I take them where, everywhere I go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as a wrap-up to this, then, we've talked about a bunch of different science-based games. So if you had to say, this is my favorite science-based game for the casual listener who was looking for, oh, I want a science-based game, what would you say? For me, it's Alchemist. Yeah, it does something that I've never seen done before. Right, it uh, the app is makes it playable. 
and the sort of like headspace you have to be in to play that game is like chess like and right, i fucking right. love it producer ross uh pandemic actually yeah i think pandemic's pretty great so i i kind of took a, a not so not so kind path here potion explosion is probably for me the most fun of the science-based games mm-hmm. and we've talked at length about potion explosion we don't need to do that but i could make arguments for others so if you're thinking about a specific setting or you have a specific game group let me give you some particulars here if you just want a quick party game that is science-based, I think Antidote is the clear winner. You can get that running in three or four minutes. Three or four minutes, and it's a really fun game. It's highly interactive. If you're digging in for the long haul, you've got a game day set aside with some people who are into fucking games. Yeah, you have to be in it to win it for Alchemist. Alchemist. It's absolutely yeah. Alchemist, right? And then finally, if you're looking for some depth with experienced gamers, you don't want to spend eight hours playing this thing, but you do have some people around the table who really understand games and you want to get into it, Compounded has been super fun for yeah, us. Yeah, next board game, I know we tried that again after saying, like, oh, I didn't quite get it. We're going to try that again? Yeah. I want to play Compounded again next board game. Yeah. Because, like, I really think there's more to it. It's it was, pretty interesting. It was great, and there's a lot of interactivity and there's a lot of strategy to it and it's also as you said really tactile oh those little those little element pulling those yeah element cubes cubes, little element wads spikes spiky things kryptonite chunks and shit so anyways that's our take on science games uh it's it's within the realm of possible if not probable that we will review another one during dissecting our fun and it is definite that we've missed some oh for sure and that's what we're looking to hear we we want more science games from you people yeah i'm curious as to how this theme popped up over and over and over again in terms of scientific exploration Caleb's going to get another beer to see what we like and don't like to rate and review which is the nature of science in and of itself classification we'll be back on the other side Dear Caleb, comma, what are you drinking, question mark? Sincerely, Spence. Salutations, Spencer, mm-hmm. comma. Mm-hmm. I am drinking a short-sleeve Cezanne from Omegon. Mm. Uh, I quite like it. It is a uh, it is a three, though. That's the lowest-rated Omegon we've ever had on the show. Yeah, it's yeah. a folk. Um, it's got some IPA hints. It's very sort of uh, hoppy and yeah. bitter for a saison, which I'm not used to, but I kind of like it. Uh, mm-hmm. But a three for me for saison is saying something. It's not my favorite type of beer by any. It's saison something. Yeah, see what I did Cezanne, there. Like. I like it. Also, I want to suggest as a point of procedure that in the future, if we're astounded by something, rather than saying, oh, my God, we go, oh, my God, because it sounds like, oh, my God, but it's oh, my God, and that's the brewery. Can we agree to that? I don't think we'll remember that. Well, I'm going to. I. Yeah. The A's have it. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what are we talking about? Okay. So here we are. Um, we are in beer number two. It's our getting lit richer segment it's your a, number two pick it's a reading segment folks this is your number two pick and we've got a really wonderful listener suggestion again from the one the only Stephen motherfucking lee yes this guy is if we were giving out listener awards and we like, are right now talking about that's right, right now that's right yeah. that's right he is like he's up there with noah carden yeah. In like gold, silver medal contention. Mm-hmm. There, there's a foot race to the end is what I'm saying. Solid conversation start. So Stephen says to us, while it seems to be dying down, the young adult genre was dominating across culture. And then he talks a little bit about the nature of Hunger Games and Rotten Ruin uh, and all of the kind of like YA pieces and how they're really influencing people to get reading. Kind of the nugget of the question is, 
What are your thoughts about the explosion of young adult literature and its dystopian tinge, which is an important an important caveat here mm-hmm. because much of it is certainly in the realm of the Divergence, the Hunger Games, Harry Potter 4 and beyond. Yeah. That something has gone terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an interesting question as someone who's read a lot of YA, and I know that you teach a lot of YA, given your profession. So I'm going to let you kick it off. What, 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 what do you think about this? All right. So, Stephen, there's actually quite a bit of literature Pun intended. Uh, by literature, I mean oh boring God. and full of... Very good. Nailed it. Uh, by literature, I mean very full of tables and boring studies about this topic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the Pew Research Group and the National Endowment for the Arts... People in, that do not fuck around. ...in completely separate studies, uh, normed across multiple years, have discovered that um, there is not a decline in reading across the board. So, the people that can read or do read is not down. However, what is down is the reading level, the complexity of both ideas and vocabulary uh, on that. And it's down across the board. So, for instance, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble today, you're going to see a shelf of YA literature that goes into the fucking vanishing point. Mm -hmm. And that will be the first of probably three. It is the number one publishing powerhouse sure. everyone wants to be twilight everyone wants to be hunger games it is driving the Ms. market Peregrine's. forward mm-hmm. to the point where the majority of ya literature from the publishing perspective does not start off as ya literature it is rewritten as ya literature in order to appeal to the market of ya literature and that's the thing it's not the market of kids buying books to read for kids it's the market of librarians buying books to read for kids mm-hmm. and Adults that right. only read YA literature because there is a sizable number mm-hmm. of them. Hey. Um, so are you right to be concerned about the decline of reading serious literature? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how you're defining serious literature because that's kind of fraught if we're talking about like the dead white guy thing. But Stephen Lee, you're a pro. I know you're talking about complexity of the ideas and complexity of language. Mm-hmm. And you are right to be disturbed by that because it's going way, way down. Um, your average reading level of your average adult nowadays hovers between seventh and ninth grade. Like, no one, your average person that's voting in elections, owning businesses, driving a two ton hurtling metal death car at you cannot read anything in an AP class, not to mention anything even approaching it. Um, like, Catcher in the Rye is beyond most children nowadays. Um, whereas, when I was in school, you would teach to kill a mockingbird in like sixth or seventh grade. Yeah. Now you're talking 10th or 11th grade. God, I had like a ninth grade English teacher handing out like all the president's men and shit. And it was like, no, that is Chapman, please. And and yeah, and that's not happening anymore. Right. Ever. Um, So you are correct in that the sort of tone of the literature has gone down. Yeah. Um, However, common sense media, questionable source. Trust me, I know. Um, but they have reported that while complexity is declining, millennials are reading more than old people. So millennials do read more, but there's a big gap in reading now. So at 13, the idea, the concept of reading for fun, meaning reading when not assigned to read, mm-hmm. which is a, the number one indicator of reading in an adult life, mm-hmm. um, that has uh, gone down through 17. 
And if you can get to 17, which is the lowest point of reading for fun for most people, and get past that, most of the time you continue on to be a lifelong reader. Hmm. That shows correlation with reading more complex work than the YA stuff. Even if you just stay YA, at least you're reading something. Right. Um, But it goes down about 17. But if you can't get over the 17 hump, you don't continue reading for the rest of your life. Wow. Uh, And that's the suggestion of their study, which common sense media, but... Uh, that's all we have in terms of sure. sheer number of reading. It, yeah, longitudinal study. Here's the struggle that I have with this question. Um, on In principle, I go, yeah, I'm disturbed by it, right? But that is motivated by a really ideal romantic vision, version of what it means to read. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's because I believe in some ethereal idea of reading as the impetus of intellectualism as the the center point for educated discourse and conversation and culture and i i really have to run into the brick wall that is 2017 and say maybe that's just not true anymore and that's the that's the struggle that i have so you know i grew up my my grandmother was an english teacher um which by extension meant that my mom was very well read and was a film major. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you sit on this, this fence, um, exposed to, I don't know. I mean, I got to read cool shit when I was growing up. It was, it was drilled into me that reading the classics was interesting and important and fun. And so I enjoyed those things. I also understand that my experience is very unique atypical and not illustrative of the larger experience of how people even my age and certainly not people of this age who have more literature available to them but but maybe less interest in literature in the same way uh are are exposed to literature and so i'm stuck here i i feel like on one hand i want to say my generation whatever that means is greater than and in the olden days we did this but I also know that because I'm 31 and on the other other side of me are a bunch of generations who still exist and still who look at me and say things like in the olden days we did blah. I go, well, yeah, but you don't understand what, yeah. what the new thing is. Mm-hmm. And so am I concerned by it? No. Um, if reading is an entry point to all of the things I've, I've outlined as the possible positive influences of having read, educated discourse, uh, an expanded perspective on the world, then reading anything, even young adult literature, is, is something, right? Because what we're, he- what we're valuing here is the practice or the process of not the thing. Yeah. If you're reading at all, the chance of you reading something of an increased level, and you're right, Making a hierarchy of those levels, even by grade levels, yep. is sort of fraught right. with the sort of political discourse yep. and rife for prejudice of any stripe. That's right. But if you're going to read something more complex, yeah. it's going to happen if you are reading in general as a habit. That's right. As opposed to not reading at all. So, so if we're I, to I celebrate will, the practice. Yeah, yeah, I will say, as Stephen here is like, I'm glad someone's reading anything at all. That is the tactic to cake. Yeah. Like, you're not going to be able to change the zeitgeist, but. Reading it all is by far superior to not reading. It. Sure, if we think reading is still valuable, and, I, and I'm I, and I'm sold I, on I that, do, but I'm unwilling, but I'm not willing to say 100 percent that's true. I mean, I'm. Willing I am to- willing to say 100 percent is true. 
Um, and I, so I do think it is important. Sure. To, and I am very sad when I see kids like read Harry Potter for the 18th time and will refuse to read any other book. Sure. And that does happen far more frequently than I'd like. Yeah. But the alternative of read nothing at all right. and then start reading, yeah. uh, you know, fucking Burke or something yeah. is not going to happen. Right. It no. will, it will not happen. No, Whereas for, there's a, a bigger chance with that kind of stuff. Yes. So, um, I will regard reading something is better than nothing yep. in any regard. However, I do think that schools need to push themselves a little bit more in regards to will the kids read it is often the first thing we answer. Not should the kids read it. I think that's an important distinction. And like you need a spotter for that kind of stuff. You and do. Those of you that have read advanced literature in academia of any kind right. are, uh, you know, the classics of any kind. Know that like when you're a freshman and learning Romeo and Juliet, which I still don't know why we do. Right. But when you're a freshman and learning Romeo and Juliet, you need someone to hold your hand through that because mm-hmm. you are not capable of it unless you're a genius. And um, and so. I will regard we should be teaching more high high level stuff, but if it comes between teach high level stuff or nothing, it has to be teach low level stuff. I totally agree. It's got to be the third option because you got to get them reading something. As to the second part of this question, which is then, are you concerned with its dystopian tinge? I mean, I think these things that the question one and question two very much exist in the same vein. I I do not. Okay, so for all of the reasons that I I wonder about whether or not reading is still the same type of idyllic act that it was when I was growing up, or at least it was in my family. I don't even know that it's a generational thing as much as it was in my context thing. Uh, for all of the reasons that I'm willing to question that, it's because I'm willing to give way that technology or progress or society, call it what you want, has moved in a different direction. And I think that much of the dystopian tinge which you find in contemporary YA is the, the logical or not-so-logical extension of that impulse or impetus. And so am I concerned about it? No, because in, in my opinion, it is responding to or illustrating the very thing that I think is kind of at the core of why I'm confused about, uncertain about, where I think reading exists in the hierarchy of social acts now as opposed to when I was 10. You know what I mean? So, no, I'm not concerned about it. Um, the, the one caveat there, and it's an important caveat, uh, you know, I think I've talked about this before. There's this great line in, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's, I think, Pebbles in the Sky, where he says, I, I don't know that the scientists and engineers of tomorrow will all be science fiction writers, but they will have certainly been science fiction readers. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I think the nugget there is that literature is constitutive, right? Yeah. It, it, it shows you an attitude on how to be, not just what we could be. That is concerning to me. That, that at a young age, for people who are looking for knowledge, who are looking for an entry point into understanding the world beyond their own means, that the bent is not across the board, but certainly significantly tilted towards a really pessimistic attitude towards the future, which I don't have. See, I will say, if you're looking at this dystopian change toward literature and you're just looking at YA, you're missing the point. There are tons of very intense literary novels that are focused on the fucking post-apocalypse. Sure. Because you've got, like, 
the Dog Stars, uh, Station Eleven, Zone One, you know, by Colton Whitehead. Any that's a zombie apocalypse novel, the lowest form of literature. Said the man who practices it. Um, so uh, you've got this sort of. A, and here's the thing: these are very like these people went to Iowa's Writers Workshop. These people went to like New York. Like they get published in these very intense literary publications, and they're doing it too. It's dystopian, completely divorced, in my argument, my right. hot take. Yeah. It's dystopian, completely divorced of the market. Yes, I'm sure someone's writing dystopian literary sci-fi because they're a literary author and they'd like to make money once. I'm sure that's happened at least once. Sure. However, I think it's dystopian because people are, we live in a dystopian society. And I think it's YA is dystopian because you want to relate to kids. And sure. Like, Kids are pretty jaded nowadays, and they're not jaded without reason. Right. I mean, I so think yeah, I, I worry nature. about it as an education, like your card. I worry that as a feedback loop. Right. I very much worry about it as a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. But I don't think it's merely dystopian just because someone wrote a dystopian novel and it made sense. For instance, look at Twilight. Yeah. Twilight is not mm, dystopian. I don't really. Yeah. Twilight's I, not dystopian right, at all. Right. But it's super successful, and you can see. Thousands of people trying to imitate Twilight and sure. failing, sure. with the exception of Fifty Shades of Grey, which is just Twilight again right. with more sex. Right. Um, then you look at people imitating The Hunger Games, and that shit will pop off if it's dystopian enough. Right. I really think it's part of the zeitgeist and not necessarily the market. Uh, it's selling because the world is that way. Sure, the world is that way, not because it's selling. It's the sour well, beer. I think. Yeah, it, I think it's not. Be, it's our perception of the world because, like, if you look at YA or like, the yeah, kind I'm, of, I'm not saying we're beyond hope. Well, but. no. Well, I mean, compared to like uh, the kind of sci-fi that kids would read in the 50s or 60s, which was way more optimistic in sure. general yeah. to the future, except for, of course, the evil empire, which was totally not the Soviet Union's, but yes, they were. Yeah. Uh, that was the kind of thing because that was the kind of attitudes that the kids would hear their parents talk about and would they would see on the news right. as opposed to now where you have a 24-hour news cycle and every latest atrocity and everything else sure. is broadcast so they can think uh, and they also want you want to make it dystopian enough so that they feel when the kids reading it it's like oh I'm not in the worst of all possible worlds yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely so, like, true uh, I mean I also and, think and yeah, about, like we're getting to like Jameson level like totality yeah. as conspiracy right. thing like these people are steeped in globalism like global yeah. culture right. which the human mind cannot perceive yeah. and so we came up with the conspiracies and so yeah the capital kills 24 kids every fucking year for reasons right because it's because like yeah. it's because you need some sort of symbolic thing to hold on to sure in the insanity of globalism at a point in which your history class is probably taught by a guy who's a gym coach and has given you nothing but seek and find worksheets yeah. and you have no concept of history you've got no concept of what where most of these countries on the news are located not to mention what the fuck they're talking about and so you you need that sort of information to sort of make a totality and hold, get a handle on it Right. I also think, you know, uh, and I suppose I could talk about this for too long, so I won't, but, you know, it's the nature of technological progress such that at some point it's no longer interesting to talk about technology as a benevolent assistant because it has accomplished all that it could accomplish in in the golden age Star Trek of the 60s. Yeah. And so what better than to make it the enemy? And so, I mean, I think there's also something to the, the novelty and the convenience of finding another path here mm-hmm. on, on, on the nature of science fiction, which is probably, you know, for me, our most sense-making of all of the genres in the first place. So yeah. all of that to say, I, I'm not as concerned about it, but I have some concerns about it. 
and and I certainly wish that there was more uh, of a positive approach, a hope making approach, to use kind of your language, Stephen. If you have a kid and you're concerned about him reading Maze Runner, maybe gently suggest they read something else. And if they don't want to do that, by all means, let them read Maze Runner. Go Maze Runner. Yeah, it's better than nothing. So yeah, that that's the the regard I have for it. On to our next beer, on to our next topic. Thank you so much, Stephen, for the suggestion, and we're moving on. Spence, what are you drinking? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Um <laughs> It is. It is a uh, fuck. What is this? This is a uh, brewed and bottled by Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales in Dexter, Michigan. It is a bam noir dark farmhouse ale. This is not a good beer. Um, this is what I got to try. This is this is a beer that is confused by all of the things that it could be, and so it has a little bit of like a. Shitty. It tastes like fucking cough medicine. Yeah. I don't like it. Like a shitty brown domestic on the front end, followed by a like not so great farmhouse kind of saison on the back end. Mm, no. And it doesn't commit to either one of those flavors enough to be particularly good. It commits hard to cough syrup flavor. So the Bam Noir Dark Farmhouse Ale, I am sorry to say, it's a ray of light for me. <laughs> this is the beginning of the end. And I feel. Is that is that a one or a two? It's a one. Okay. If there were to put it in context, if there were other dark farmhouse ales to be made after this, this would have been the beginning <laughs> of the end. Okay. So while I do my best to choke this down, Caleb, what are we talking about? We are talking about in Ask Mixed Six, which is hard to say when you're a little drunk, and especially hard for the kid who went to speech therapy for yeah. S's. I am sorry, uh, so we're, sorry. We're here, but Matt Price asks a brilliant question: uh, What are your top five? We're probably going to do five. We're going to do three. Mm-hmm. But what are your top five Saturday morning cartoons? And you just. He is, I mean, the fact that you keep drinking it. If after. Well, we've committed to a bit, Ross. All right, yeah, no, we're I, professionals. I, I feel like yeah, I make I, a I, duck I, face when I drink it. You mm-hmm. do make a duck admirable. Face. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are going to talk about our top five, our top three, top three Saturday morning cartoons, and uh, I'm so fucking psyched to do it. I'm going to start first because wow. you are struggling to keep your bile down. I want to throw up slightly. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right. uh-huh. So uh, I'm going to go with number three, which is the X-Men animated God, series. God, it's so good. The one that starts with the Sentinel Wars. Oh. Yeah. Impetus for the classic arcade game, yes, X-Men. Exactly. Yes. Um, I think they made two seasons of it, maybe. And I think like my local television show got the first one. Yeah. And it was basically like eleven episodes on constant rerun and yeah. repeat. And it and then Jubilee. Morph died, and then Morph came back. Yeah, and like I would just, and it was the first cartoon on in the morning, and I would like set an alarm to go down and see what was inevitably a rerun of X Men the animated series because they did not make that many of them, and and be fucking thrilled about it, like so content when Gambit came up and he's just fucking 
doming some sentinels with goddamn uh, exploding playing it's, cards. It's the best depiction of Gambit in the history of the X-Men. The, yes, by far. Yeah. Way better than Taylor Ketch. Way better. All right, I need you to tamp down your bile and vomit reflex. I just got a little coffee in the last one is the problem. <laughs> so it's like, it's a grab bag of vomit. That I'm drinking here. I'm so sorry, Jolly Pumpkin. I've had other beers from you that were delicious, and this is not on the list. Okay. Look, I feel like my three here... Um, first off, your list is better than mine. I want to say that. Okay? It's the one time that's happened. He's talking about Madonna. Uh, in as much as I would have made a better Madonna list, you've made a better Saturday morning cartoon list. I, I want to say that I think that my number three here violates the impetus of this question. I feel like the phrase Saturday morning cartoon depicts... Implies from childhood. Yeah, it depicts a time it's a little and place. Late, yeah. yeah, And so I violated that because there still is a Saturday morning cartoon that I watch, not religiously, but certainly regularly. And I, I can't recommend it enough. And it's Teen Titans Go. If it's on, much like Young Justice, I will stop what I'm doing. It's totally different And watch Teen Justice. Titans it's Go. It's totally different. It's totally different, and yet it has the same effect on me. That's right. And that whatever I'm doing has stopped because yeah. I'm watching this now. Imagine if Young Justice were also Bobby's World. That would be <laughs> Teen Titans Go. Yes. Uh, so Teen Titans Go is a contemporary cartoon that I put on probably more than I should for being mm. a 31-year-old human. <laughs> Um, it is written for it is written for adults, but looks like it should be for children. It is highly referential. It even has scenes from Teen Titans in it, or actually, I guess from Young Justice. Yeah, uh, no, it's Teen Titans. It's Teen Titans. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah, Teen Titans in it. Um, look, it's fucking smart. Uh, it does. It's a really good take on a sarcastic version of the Titans. Uh, and I really like the Teen Titans series, I really too. like the Teen Titans. What I'm learning more over the last couple of years is that I really like the younger versions of the Justice League <laughs> more than I like the played-out, monolithic Justice League. Yeah. yeah. So Teen Titans Go is great. It's on Cartoon Network, like, all day. It's like that and We Bear Bears. So just turn on Cartoon Network, and chances are you can check some Teen Titans Go. It's worth the time. What's number two for you? Uh, Animaniacs. God, it's a good answer. Should have, And it's coming back. To be clear. Yep. Should have never been shown to kids yeah. in the first place. Some of the end jokes on Animaniacs Ridiculous. are just like some of the shit that Yakko and, and Dot say, man, are just it's just fucking filthy. Would be censored. Like Shakespearean the, filthy. The old yeah. squirrel lady, too, yeah. Oh, yeah. N- nurse. Yeah. Every nurse joke yeah. is so sexual. Hello, um, nurse. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I, I love that show. Uh, intensely educational because it had to be to get its money. God, and Pinky and the Brain is Pinky just... and the Brain. We owe them for that much alone. Yeah. Uh, Animaniacs. I will watch that today and be just as entertained as when I was a kid. It's Pixar levels of, you know, best of both worlds. It's unbelievable. I. <laughs> Watch, watching him comment is like a sportscaster that's like drank a bunch of Epicac <laughs> before going on air. And it's just like he knows he can't vomit on air. And he's got to say something. But he's he's muscling through the nausea reflex every time. I cannot in good conscience recommend this beer to you. <laughs> we gathered. Yeah. It it feels like what happened what gets rejected from the beer like if it was if it was like playground rules this is the beer that wouldn't get picked mm-hmm. okay number 2 for me this is a deep cut but it's the real ghostbusters I'm down and it's on Netflix now and that's going to be like a whole week for me. I don't need it on Netflix because I have it on DVD. What? Oh my god. Oh my god. Did it. Uh I so Here's the interesting. Th- here, here's the reason the real Ghostbusters has stuck with me. It is a 
it is a stark departure from the film in some ways, and I think I've made pretty clear probably at this point that maybe my favorite movie of all time is the original Ghostbusters. If I haven't made that clear, my handle is Egon Zord, so I feel like you don't get the joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a stark departure from that in its characterization, uh, and it's kind of like treatment of uh, well, of the bit. But holy fucking shit, I cannot think of something that got more of my time energy as a child, except for number one on the list, yeah. than the real Ghostbusters. Um, and it's worth every fucking minute of the show. What's number one for you? I think it's your number one as well. Because it's the greatest cartoon there, ever oh, made. One, one quick note about the Ghostbusters cartoon. Yeah. They actually did an episode called The Collect Call of Cthulhu. Uh, which oh, no, it gets, yeah, it gets weirdly Lovecraftian um, at one point. No, actually, uh, one of the writers for it, I believe, was Larry Dottilio, uh, who also wrote the campaign for um, Massive Nyarlathotep, uh, which is a classic call of Cthulhu. I did not know that. Yeah. Hot uh, damn. Or it's Lynn Willis. It's one of them. Uh, he worked on both the animated show and on the campaign. Damn. That makes some sense, because that shit's yeah. legit. Well, speaking of epic writers working for an insane kids cartoon Epic show, writers. Uh, Batman the Animated Series, and it's no question. It's, it's not, untouchable. It's not close. It's untouchable. I've seen every episode dozens of times. I'm re-watching it on Amazon now for like the I third or I own all the seasons time. on DVD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Hamill is the Joker. Was like, are you fucking kidding? Harlan me? Ellison writing an episode, writing because why not? Right, we'll get fucking Harlan Ellison in on this bit. Yeah. Adam West as the the Grey Ghost, Grey Ghost, previously mentioned in a hot takes. Oh. Not to mention the what I think, and I'd be that's wa- still the voice of Batman. I hear. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I'd be willing to go to the mat on this. Yeah, it is the single greatest Batman on in in live media I have ever seen. I, I would put I would put that Batman up against any other cinematic and or serial. If depiction. you want to refer back a couple of weeks ago to our hot takes on Adam West, yeah, uh, it's the Hegelian synthesis of yes Frank Miller grimdark yes versus utter camp comic book yes, and then you get Batman the animated series because it is both like it's got teeth but they're in weird places and it gets weirdly dark at times weirdly and then dark. it gets also gets super campy at yep. times and it just really does it in the right it's also sincere framework. too it's yeah like, it's utterly sincere, sincere. Yeah. the tongue is never in cheek right. on there right. uh, yeah no Batman the animation is hands down people. not yeah. even close it is also in terms of the rogues gallery it is the most complete depiction, complete and There's accurate. There's pathos yeah, of, for yeah. the villains, yeah. Accurate depiction of the rogues gallery I have ever seen. To go back to our Adam West thing, yeah. I wonder if Mark Hamill didn't learn a little bit of what it means to be older Mark Hamill. Sure. From Adam West sure. appearing on that show. Absolutely. Because he was there like every other week. Yeah. And uh, Hamill went through a, a serious area of con stank. Yeah. He couldn't do it anymore. He right. couldn't hang out at the con. Because felt, it felt depressing. Right. Uh, for all the obvious reasons. Right. And now he's just learned to be an elder statesman yeah. of nerddom, and he's impeccable at it. Yeah. But I, I feel like West paved the way there. Uh, yeah, there's just so much talent in that show. And then the art alone, like the art direction oh. in that show, I've never seen like a background or a character that wasn't just so thoroughly in line. They made every fucking panel look like it was drawn by one guy or gal. Yes. It looks like it came yeah. from a single mind. Right. Even though, yeah, 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 they had it just down to the line. Yep. Like, every piece of shading in that show is pitch perfect. It looked like, whereas uh, I thought the first Tim Burton Batman 
And, and the second one, which went a little overboard, had that uh, you know 1918 World's Fair, uh, you know, tall met- metropolis-like buildings. Where Joel Schumacher thought, well, what if we turned all of those into nightclubs? The Batman the Animated Series said, what if all of those were kind of like haunting and menacing because of their sheer scope and size? Yes. And and hard lines. Mm -hmm. And it's almost perfect looking. It was also one of the most understated versions of the Batmobile. And I think there's something. Yeah, in, it was just a car. It was just a. It was just a long car. <laughs> it was armored, I mean, right? Yeah. yeah, it was just a long car. I mean, pretty much. But there's something so refreshing. Refreshing, which is to say, Batman doesn't have to be ornate, and he doesn't have to be configured. He can just literally. This be, is a functionally really fast armored car. That's right. That's right. What if he just had a really it's fast got some grappling hooks? That's on right. It. That's right. That's it. Uh, Batman. Originally, when I'd made this list, it was not on the list, and I thought because I don't think it's a Saturday morning cartoon. And then I thought, you know what? Fuck that. I want to talk about Batman the animated series. And so I went back to put it on there and noticed that it was also your number one. And uh, it made me feel better about the fact that you totally flubbed our rating system today. So, you know, a little bit of recovery. So on that note... You really get your talking points laid out, don't you? I really do. I have, okay. just, I have a whole list right here, and the list is just fuck with Caleb on Madonna rating system. Yeah. So on that note, we're on to another beer, we're on to another topic, and we'll see you in just a second. I don't know that I've ever been more excited to hear you talk about a beer than this one. So just jump in there. He's man. already rubbing his forehead. What, already... you, what you drinking? So there's a long story to this one. Strap it. Real long. Uh, I was at the wine center looking for beers we have not tried. It's getting difficult because uh, guess what? This is the one. And I had to make sure this was the one. <laughs> Damn it. My phone is... Oh. This is our hundredth beer. Oh. I added the sound effect because Ross didn't. Oh, is it really our hundredth beer? This is the hundredth beer. Holy shit! Fourth beer. Oh, on this episode's the hundredth. Anyway, long preamble. I warned you. Uh, so we're here. I'm at the wine center. I'm looking for beers to get. I see against the grain. They've already had. They've always had art that pops off the. Yeah, it looks very much like Super Jail. It's very interesting art style. Um, but but. I'm looking at it, but. and they have a uh, can. Against the Game Brewery has a can called the Brown Note, which is literally just a tattooed man who has shit his pants. In Tidy Whities, he's just shit his pants, and that's the whole cover of the beer for a brown ale. And I'm like, why would anyone on earth buy a beer that has a man shitting his pants on it? And then I figured out, well, perhaps they have a podcast and they want to talk about why you would ever do that. So I'm apparently the target demographic for right. this beer. That's right. But uh, I feel like that's too narrow to be sustainable. So I'm going to try the brown note from Against the Gain Brewery that is a man shitting his pants right. on the can. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot. Just so we're all clear. Live while, while, testing. While Caleb Live drinks this, the, yeah. the can is just an illustration of a man with, with shit in his pants. And then the, he, and then the, the shit whities. running down, yeah. running yeah. like kind of running downward. Yes. So how does it? What is it? How does it taste with the beer? It's it's like a Vogue. It's alarmingly a three. Wow. It's a middle of the road. I was not expecting that. Yeah, it's a solid brown ale. Like it does what brown ale should do. I mean, I guess I guess this is the marketing ploy. It's like it's sort of a medium brown ale yeah and so like make it stand off on the shelf and if that was all you were going for against the grain 
Mission accomplished. Do you know who else took a strategy that was just make it stand out first? What are we talking about? Uh, that was that was Madonna's like a virgin. I'm not talking Kill about that. Them. What are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyways, What's the segment. While you drink that literal shit stain, uh, we'll be talking about in Ready Player Drunk, which was, as I understand it, the number one number one segment vote. Thank Man, you very much. Good God, people. talking about them video games. Yeah. Um. And and we're going to talk about something. Emoji. Near and dear to our recent experiences, mm-hmm. and something something that we owe to Jeb Dale. If yes. I'm being totally honest, super listening. Yeah, this Jeb is Dale. really a Jeb suggestion. That's right, because that's right. He brought the VR headset. We we have recently both both together, and mm-hmm. then I, I had the fortunate experience uh, of also going to a VR workshop, experience virtual reality, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that what that what that whole thing's like, mm-hmm. and that whole thing is a big fucking deal. Is how I feel about it. So without getting too into the weeds on this, Caleb. What is VR for you? Here's the thing. I don't see it. I think we have one more generation before it becomes everywhere. And here's why. Because it's really good now. It looks really cool. It's really immersive. Um, The graphics are amazing. And I'm one of those kids that went into like really specially arcades before and like had the full headset with the treadmill and shot a bunch of people that were polygons on this like blank plane. Sure. I I tried it like in its infancy in many other places. It feels like it's arriving there with the Batman VR, with the stuff they're doing to conflict motion sickness in various games like Resident Evil, which is a great VR port. I feel like it's very close I feel like it's not going to take off as the next generation of gaming yet because they cannot get the price point down. It's a PS4 plus $500 right. at this point. Right. And no. Right. Like, the mass market appeal is never going to be there for that. However, I feel like the technology's arrived, and I don't feel like anybody's ever going to stop toying with VR because yeah. the idea of it is too sticky. Um, so I think we're going to always get into that further and further level. And I've never been in a VR room with like haptic gloves oh, and all that kind of fucking shit that you did. Uh, but I feel like once we can get there where we're making those components to a point where it can be purchased by the same type of person that's going to buy you know, your average gaming console, uh, I think that's when we never turn back. Uh, I don't think it's this generation, though, because I think it's yeah. still too expensive. Right. We're not heading for Ready Player One yet, but, yeah. we're, but we're, in, we're in the past. I can, see it in, I can see it in the distance now for the first time. Right. So I can imagine it. I, I appreciate your forecasting, and I, and I don't know that you're wrong. I, I want to talk about VR kind of at a more personal level, what the experience was like for me. That's fair. Yeah. So I have to say that the that I'm a little bit biased. The first VR experience I had uh, was with a gentleman in town, uh, Charlie Rosenberry. He he has a company in town, uh, and he does VR specific development and programming. And so he let us come in and do some kind of like VR training, VR workshops. And the first thing that he did for me, I think, out of the kindness of his heart, uh, was put me into the Arkham VR game. Where I was in a ten by ten square, got to walk, which around is alarmingly the room. good. Alarmingly, for a game in which you're Batman and not punching people, that's right. It's still like really compelling, right? And and there's even some of that in there in your ability to throw batarangs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I guess what I'm saying is, 
Uh, if you listen to this podcast, it's not unlikely that at some point in your life you've imagined what it would be like not not to be that per- certainly to be that person. But I think we all understand the gap there between reality and imagination. But rather to get as close to that filling that gap as we could. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to put a headset and hold some shit on your hands uh, that allowed you to experience that kind of thing for the first time in a very real sense was, and I, and I don't want to say this too loosely or uncertainly, it was transformative for me. It kind of changed the way I think about media and interaction and entertainment. That game does scope unlike any other VR experience yes. I've had. Like, the Batcave seems so fucking vast. Yes. Just so, un, like, incomprehensibly enormous. Yes. It feels really amazing. Um, and it's not just that. So then I thought, um, what, what am I going to do next? And so Charlie was kind enough... Uh, to and the name of his company is Self Interactive. I think it's it's fair that I call that out. Uh, he put me in Google Maps and allowed me to fly around the world. And so I went to my childhood home on Google Maps and I stood in front of it. Now, granted, it was blocky because it's on Google Maps, and that's what happens as you get closer to objects. But then I, I, I raised up some feet and I flew over my hometown, and there was something so incredibly liberating and incredible about looking over the place where I grew up as I literally floated or flew above it, right? I mean, you know, I, and, I, and I can't not talk about this without using the language of a child because it was childlike in mm-hmm. the scope and imagination. Wonder. Yeah, yeah wonder. Exactly. Awe, yes. The ability to fly over Blue Springs, Missouri and see places and go, oh my God, that's where I went to high school. That's where I went to elementary school. You know, that's where my grandparents lived. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not real. I'm not. I'm not dumb. But but I also know it's the first experience I've had like that. And you know, at 31, 30 years old at the time, there aren't a lot of things that feel new—not just novel, but wondrous and awe-inspiring. Let alone things that are video games, which yeah. is which is the language of my life, my indoctrination, my enculturation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. VR was a liberating, unlocking experience for me. It has it has changed the way that I I want to think about the world moving forward, and I I understand how ridiculous I sound saying that. Uh, I'm very interested in the sort of social mechanics of it. Yes. Uh, so, for instance, the uh, keep talking, and nobody explodes, which is brilliant. I find that a brilliant game mechanic in general, which yeah. is where the people on the screen have PDFs, just blank documents, yep. and the VR person is the only one playing the game, and you're trying to give them advice so they survive the game. Yep. Um, we played Resident Evil, what is it, 7? Seven? 7. Holy seven. fucking shit. And we played saves off of uh, Jeb's PS4, and he had a save where like one creepy thing was happening, and I, I enjoyed... On no less than three occasions, freaking people out because I memorized where the thing was going to happen because you can watch it on the screen as well. And I just tell people I need you to look left and look down a little bit. And there's a terrible monster crawling up for them. And I, it was, and like watching people freak out was like one of the biggest cooperative on couch gaming experiences I've had since like Guitar Hero. I almost threw up playing Resident <laughs> Evil 7 when something jumped out the wall at me, right? Five out of five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, like, that's the thing. Like, you know, I've played enough video games in my time, and I've even experienced enough attempts at, the, like, the fucking Nintendo Virtual Boy. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, my God. I have experienced <sighs> enough attempts at making me feel like... Do you like, ever want laser surgery without anesthetic? Right. Virtual Boy. Right. I have, I have experienced enough attempts at making you feel like you're not playing a video game to go, oh, I'm playing a video game. Yeah. In a box or something. No, or in a chair. started. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. It it totally changed my understanding of what interaction with media could be. And that uh that wasn't even with like online intentional components. So like that was just like people hanging out drinking in the same room, which mm-hmm. I think couch co-op for VR is fucking amazing. But I haven't even played like Star Trek Bridge Team. Oh my yet. god. I want and I want to so bad. So bad. I want to play Bridge Team so bad. So but like the I, idea of doing Artemis Space Simulator, which we have done yeah. without having to fucking set up a fucking projector and like yeah. 18 computers right. is brilliant and I want that right now. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like video games have been a language of mine, right? For yeah. for for all of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that now we have reached a new, you know, it's as if we had nouns and verbs and someone has now introduced a, a, a new classification of language. Some new way for me to interact with symbols, which seem very old and meaningful and simple and and and, uh, and near and dear to my heart. Uh, yeah, I, you know, not so subtly and without getting too uh, abjectly weepy about it, it. It's a game changer for me. You know, so, I I kind of think that a lot. Of, you know, Kale at the beginning was talking about how w- it's not here, but it's going to be inside. I think what what's going to make it inside is uh, when every smartphone can uh, support it. Because you right now you can get yep. these cardboard headsets, yeah, where you just put your phone in and that becomes yeah. your headset, yeah. And so I think when that happens, when every every current phone is able to do handle right. that, or you can plug your phone into your PS4. I, yeah, I really think it's an economic yeah. thing at this yeah. point. It is, and it I don't is. think we're there. But uh, I guess we're getting there. I kind of want to see how that. I think a lot of lessons from VR are going to apply to augmented reality. Yes. Uh, so you start. And Google's recently announced yeah. an aug- augmented reality program. Yeah, I mean those yeah. things. Th- those things are the gap for me, right? They, they fill yeah. kind of the middle between Pokemon Go, but there's a real game. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and and you know I am I'm gonna I'm going to save and spend my disposable income within the next couple of weeks on a PSVR because. I can't think of something which is going to change the nature of media for me yeah. as, as, as extensively and, 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 and meaningfully. And so, yeah, I'm in. Lawnmower man for reals. So right. maybe don't buy it like right now if you have money problems, but definitely try it. Find somebody who's got some VR and give yeah. it a shot. You can come to my house. Yeah, Just give me a heads up. House. Yeah, my dog's a real, real um, shit. <laughs> and because we're not like all full of ourselves, even though that was our 100th beer. We're going to move on to the 101st. Like That's right. Nothing at all. Hey. I'll be back with another beer soon, yo. Yeah. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from Bell's, which is a phenomenal brewery. Mm-hmm. This is the Pool Time Ale which is a Belgian-inspired wheat ale with cherry juice. I'm going to pull the um, we do like cherry. still water rule. I'm going to try it live on air, although... That has backfired for I us. I have to tell you, I, I do want to continue to throw up the last beer, <laughs> so we'll see where this one makes it. Well, that's light, at least, <laughs> and it doesn't make me want to die. Um, <laughs> a strong show. <laughs> That's a three. For, that's a vogue for me. That's a, a lot three. of voguing this episode. It's a vogue. Well, I mean, that's kind of how it should be, right? There's yeah. nothing wrong with vogue. We should vogue as yeah. much as possible. It is, <laughs> as we will talk about in our sixth segment, kind of the nature of the bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, it's fine. Um, it's light. The cherry juice makes the kind of like Belgian saison style a little bit sweeter, which mm-hmm. I like. Uh, I don't know that it changes the game for me on anything, but I would I would drink it if someone put it in front of me. Yeah. Such such has happened. Uh, while we, while I, I should say, drink the pool time ale, Caleb, what are we talking about? 
We are talking about an armchair director. Holla. Something. It's been a while, I It feel, has been a bit. Since we did a movie segment. Something suggested by Zoltan Haley. Mm. I think that's how it's pronounced. He wants to know our favorite horror movies. Seems a little uh, a-seasonal being in the middle of the summer and not October, but I'm glad to get it out of the way early. People can't get scared when they humid, Caleb? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I well, think you can. Okay, that's it. Uh, so there we go. Uh, so what is your... Top three horror movies. Yeah, so I've, I've condensed it to a top three, except for the fourth, which is an honorable mention. Um, which deserves your honorable mention. It does mention deserve place. an honorable mention. There is something to be said for Cabin in the Woods. I just want to be honest about that. Uh, I think Cabin in the Woods is a perfectly entertaining, wonderfully meta film, but it doesn't make the top three, but it was worth mentioning, so mention. So a better deconstruction than, say, Scream. Yes, correct. Yes, yes, absolutely. I've seen meta horror before That's and right. disliked it more yeah. than Cabin. That's right. Wants. Although, yeah. well, I'm not going to get into the scream right now. Yeah. Um, I do love me some Nev Campbell is what I'm what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> uh, having said that, number th- uh, the official number three for me is the original, not to be confused with the remake, Psycho. Thank God. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, I've talked about this before, especially when we've talked about It. My mom was really into me seeing kind of the classics, and she was a huge Hitchcock fan when I was growing up. Um, well, horror films in general, Hitchcock in particular. And so, you know, I saw the I saw It when I was like two or three. I saw The Shining at a terribly young age, like three or four. Uh, and Psycho was kind of like... We have... This is a segment right. by itself, talking right. about your mother's concept of what is appropriate viewing for in a child. order at like three years old it was like it the shining psycho and the exorcist <laughs> yeah so like what i'm saying is i got this you know what i mean Can someone called department of family services that's right for spencer by like nine year old the time phone when my when my when my friends were like i'm scared i'm like is it a clown or is it a demon because like i knew what to do okay uh, but the original Psycho, not just for its cinematic feat, and uh, obviously Psycho is kind of peak Hitchcock in some ways, right? Um, the the Having seen it at such a young age, and now 25 plus years later, or whatever it is, where, where you realize that, where, where you see the skeleton of the mother sitting in that bedroom window and realize the whole time that the thing staring out at you was not staring out of you, but in fact the other woman was, I think it's Anthony Curtis, uh, and, and, and playing some live version of the skeleton who he'd been keeping for reasons mm-hmm. of affection, etc. That's a haunting fucking moment for me. Uh, and it kind of stands out in the annals of horror films. So Psycho gets my number three. What's number three for you? So number three for me. Uh, and I have, an, I have an honorable mention as well, which is The Descent, which I think is a superb front-to-back Which I won't horror watch. Movie. It's terrifying. Claustrophobia ain't no joke for me. Oh, no. It is terrifying from front-to-back. Very to back. intense. Yeah. But it loses points on there being The Descent 2 and it being one of the worst films ever made. Fair. Um, but um, my number three is The Thing. John Carpenter. Amen. Because uh, the creature effects are fucking phenomenal. Also, what I love in a horror movie is characters that behave rationally. Yes. And there has never been a better conceit as to why you don't leave the fucking house yeah. as to you're in Antarctica and right. you will die in a matter of seconds. Yeah, you can't. Um, and uh, 
everyone behaves right. Like, the testing scene is like, fuck this. We're going to figure this out. Like, strap everybody to a chair, do the blood test thing. For McCready, is hands down great. It's sort of a puzzle box of a film as to yeah. who has turned into it. When does Wilford Brimley become the thing? Yeah, and when does an, he not become the thing? As a Movian kind yeah, of. It's, yeah, it's a puzzle box of a film you can watch multiple times. The effects are utterly terrifying in the way practical effects can only be and uh, it's a phenomenal film. I know people are going to be very angry with me that it's not one, but it is three. And that's all I can say until we get higher up. I think it's a great film. Uh, much as I went through a horror phase, I also went through a John Carpenter phase. And the thing was, was a good high phase. on that list. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, Big Trouble in Little China is the one which has stuck with me the most. Yeah. Um, but all of them were quite good. Number two for me um, is 28 Days Later. And this movie got it fucking right in terms of isolation, uh, fear, and the unknown. So whereas a a lot of horror films, particularly in the zombie genre, start with the explanation of, so how did we end up with, um, 28 Days Later introduces you. Yeah, that's not interesting. Fuck that. Zombie apocalypse. That's right. Introduces you to the conceit. You weren't there, and now you are. That's right. Long after it has occurred, and you've woken up not only to an invisible, gone, have-disappeared world, but now you have to figure out why when you walk outside, people are running at you. It also did um, something that I thought a lot of other zombie films don't do very well. They all try to do it, which is it took a character that was beloved, Brendan Gleeson's father character, it straight turns him into a zombie. Killed his ass off hard. And you've got to kill him. So it, it creates an emotional relationship. At no point like at no point in that film do you feel any character is safe. No, that's right. And and you don't even get that in Night of the Living Dead. I was gonna say yeah. that that's that's the trick. Twenty eight days later, uh, more than other films of its genre, something which The Walking Dead has taken from very significantly, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is when you find respite, what if it's not respite at all? Because the military is also a bunch of fucking rapists <laughs> who are hard up for women and or pleasure. And so wherever you think you're safe, you are in fact not safe at all. It it was the first I'm totally boxed in by the zombie apocalypse and the social conditions which the zombie apocalypse has wrought. Yeah. Uh, and there's no safe place here. I'm going to say less about that for reasons right. that yeah. will quickly become apparent. Absolutely. But my number two is... Uh, Alien, mm-hmm. uh, back when Ridley Scott should have been allowed to make movies. That's and right. he was, thank yep. God. Uh, the though, good old days. Though someone please take a camera away from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If you see Ridley Scott shooting a movie, you should tackle him like yes. he's a suicide bomber. People who have not um, learned things from George Lucas. One, Ridley Scott. Yes, yeah. Uh, Alien is fantastic um, from front to back. The fact that the horror genre can be moved into different settings, not apparent until Alien and forever apparent after that. Jesus. Um, the horror of Geiger's creation and the lasting horror of it. Fuck, that thing looks messed up. What gets for me for Alien, I remember scenes in Alien, and the thing that impacts me is the first time I saw Alien was the self-destruct sequence in which Sigourney Weaver is, uh, Ripley is moving around the, around the cabin with her cat she doesn't know where this fucking thing is. Yeah. It can jump out anywhere, as they've shown you multiple times throughout the fucking movie. So the grammar of the film is ex- you're expecting it. And the only soundtrack is just blaring klaxons and a self-destruct sequence. Yep. I have never been so 
affected by the audio of a film as I have the ending sequence of Alien, where it's just five minutes of her going through dark tunnels, heavy breathing, and then self-destructing. Like, I have never felt in my chest apprehension to the point where I have in that first Alien film. I I didn't know what horror could do until then. It uh, it certainly for me that's something I actually came to later in life. Uh, it kind of and I, I think your way of talking about it changed the vocabulary of horror films for me. They were not set um, in kind of familiar locations, having twisted them right on yeah. uh, on their face. It was set in a clandestine location, one that I was unfamiliar with, and added the complexity. But the terror, of death. the terror adds the ver- that's verisimilitude. Right. Like, oh, we're in space. But you're still an animal being hunted. That's right. That's like, right. yeah, like it's so primal. Yeah. yeah. So number one for me, and I like I like the way you're thinking about this, that there are images that stick with you, right? Mm-hmm. Things that you can't not, you can't it unsee. Should be, a horror film should be traumatic. That's right. Number one for me is The Shining. Yeah. Um, Wish you saw it. Two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in the in the I, womb. I, yeah, yeah, in the womb. There was I don't a, know kind of an in mother... vitro projector. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I saw The Shining at a very young age, um, partially because my mom just, I think, was struck by its its cinematography. I mean, it is a... It oh, is, no. Talk about images. Yeah. Right. You know, you don't even need to have seen The Shining to be intimately familiar with the two girls standing outside of the elevator bank covered in... Or, or the two girls standing in the hallway covered in blood. The the scene outside the elevator bank with the, the blood rushing in. Um, Jack Nicholson cutting through the door. Uh, the hedge mage. The hedge maze. The, the gentleman at the bar while Jack Nicholson's getting drunk. Shelley... Du- Perhaps the most haunting image in the Shining, the Shining is Shelley Duvall running up the stairs, looking over and seeing the uh, functionally the character from Spaceballs, the dog, giving what what is probably head. A, a, yeah it's a blowjob. He's definitely right, giving a head. A blowjob to the gentleman, and the two of them stopping to look at Shelley Duvall. She's running up the stairs in abject fear. I mean. You want to talk about trying to wrap your head around the horror and and maybe more than the horror of the disassociation from reality, right? Which is in some ways the mark of a great horror film, that it suddenly makes you feel as if everything which is normal and regular, just a fucking hotel, you know, in the mountains, feels so detached from reality Mm -hmm. that you cannot make sense of what you've just seen, and yet you know that a reasonable character has just encountered it. That, for me, is kind of the impetus of a a meaningful horror film. And so The Shining has kind of transformed my life in that way. Now, it, it also helps that, you know, at a young age, we took a road trip to the Stanley uh, which is the the hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, which is kind of you know the the setting for The Shining. It's the mm-hmm. the impetus for, and we toured it. And uh, then, the, of course, that other hotel is used for the actual aerial shots of the hotel. The Overlook, I think, is the name in the film. Uh, so there's some like very tangible relationships for me in my in my youth. But I cannot think of a more haunting, maybe not horror but a more haunting film or more haunting images than those which I have seen in The Shining. Yes. Number one for you. Uh, 28 Days Later. It's your number two. Yes. So here's the thing why I will acknowledge in talking about this. I will admit, and I think you should admit, yep. listener, that the horror genre is in some way uh, contingent upon age. So, for instance, I can recognize Vincent Price's Last Man on Earth as a good film. Yeah. I cannot find it horrifying because right. I'm seeing it years later after I'm looking at the history of Good film. distinction. 28 Days Later, I'm seeing it in high school. 
the zombie genre isn't a thing anymore. Right. And I know that's hard to relate to for a lot of people nowadays, but it isn't a thing anymore. It is con- completely entirely dead. Right. They bring it back so Tired fucking even. hard. Yeah. So hard yeah. that it reinvigorates the genre to the point that I wrote a zombie game yeah. and it is disregarded as because of 28 Days Later. But I wrote the zombie game because of 28 Days Later. Right. It reinvents the entire genre. Yeah. The concept of fast zombies wasn't oh. a thing because they existed before in Night of the Return of the Living Dead, I Return believe. Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living yeah. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. paramedics. Also also, yeah, talk about brains. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's existed before, but never resonated. But with 28 Days yeah. Later, it fucking resonates. Yeah, it does. So um, the grainy film stock, yes. the handy cam, yeah. the way they used the image and dirtied it up to make it more right. uh, real than and it would be in a horror terribly movie. melancholy rock music in the background. Terribly melancholy rock music. Godspeed, the, you black The sort of... Um, the anticipation of it, not seeing them everywhere, waiting for them to show up. The initial jump scare in the church where he, the first Jesus. words that, where he says hello and half the fucking pews jump up and Pops look up. at him yeah. is some of the most visceral terror I've ever had in a movie theater. Yeah. And then you add to it the sort of social commentary of the military aspect and the fact that Jim survives by becoming an animal, right. sort of like reifying the yeah. sort of Luddite narrative. is like, you know when you can survive the zombie apocalypse? Right. When you can kill a man by That's putting right. your thumbs in his eyes. That's right. That's when you can do, get through do, it. Do you know how you survive the state of nature? Become the state of nature. Yeah, become the state of Become an animal. Yeah. A shirt. And when he's like, and when you can see him in the scenes with the infected running about unseen and you can't because he them. is so deeply among them. That's right. Uh, 20 days later for me just blew my head up yeah, yeah. as a kid and made me scared of zombies for the rest of my life. And, and I have to acknowledge it. Worth yeah. mentioning that 28 weeks later is also is the beginning phenomenal. Of, the beginning of 28 weeks later is so fucking terrifying yeah. I cannot watch it. Uh, the subway scene in 28 weeks later where all she also, has also fucking terrifying. Invented an entire that scene yeah. invented an entire realm of video games. That's right. You don't get Outlast without 28 weeks later. That's right. So um, yeah powerful films you may think zombies are played out fuck you they're brilliant they're a modern myth structure i'm definitely on the side of the zombies right by um, red markets yeah by red markets uh-huh. um but 20 days later is great i totally well, agree I, I have three really quick jump in uh, there. go for it producer, producer ross. ross uh oh my god <laughs> mine are mostly well different uh so three for me is actually incident in lake county which is a super obscure found footage horror film it's about a family they're having thanksgiving dinner and like an a uh, ufo lands nearby and it it's the most well done found horror found footage horror film I've ever seen. It's way better than the Blair Witch. It looks like an actual film, uh, you know, VHS, you know, mm-hmm, camcorder mm-hmm. footage of Never family. It's a lot harder to do than it seems. It is. Right. The yeah. actors pull off that there it's are. It's very easy as a narrative conceit. It's very difficult as a visual conceit. Sure. And a lot of the scares are so subtle. You don't, you aren't sure you saw them, mm-hmm. but they start creeping up in intensity. Love that. Like you just, there's two characters. They're talking at a table. There's a window in the background between the two. And then the screen glitches over a little bit. Everything gets like weird and pixelated and something goes by the window and you just don't like what the fuck did I just see and it just starts building up and then when it finally the shit hits the fan it's so quick and so intense you're like what the fuck just happened so I'm in for that it was actually sold as a real UFO attack at like they they took out the beginning like credits oh, and yeah. sold it on unlabeled tapes at UFO conventions as oh, nice. proof that the nice. UFOs like were the real. HGL shit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they were able to do that 
Uh, number two is sort of representative of a whole subgenre I really love uh, Italian horror films from the 70s uh, like the the Giallo which one are you going for? Suspiria okay uh, alright uh, sure. I thought we were going for Phenomenon or no whatever. no Phenomenon I like but that's yeah, Monkey what, with a Straight Razor no, no. so um, yeah the Suspiria it has the, all of these films uh, have a weird sort of dream logic to them yeah. and the like, color saturation the color is, has not been done in film before or since yeah no and it's like it's in a dream but it's, it's like reasons. these really twisted you know it's like a, it's a Grimm's fairy tale yeah. and like nothing makes sense but it does make sense and right. like when there's always uh, what I love is Suspiria and like Deep Red also uh, have these little clues visual clues that tell you how what's going to happen or who the bad guy is and you don't see them until like they make it it tells until you it makes the, sense right. yeah until it makes sense yeah. and uh, so my favorite uh, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, or a podcast before, is Night of the Living Dead. Because uh, I saw it as a kid, and it had the same effect on me that Caleb was talking about 28 Days Later. It was just uh, just, just absolutely traumatic to me to yeah, see. Yeah, this looks fucking wrong. Yeah, like, it, It's yeah. so sparse. It looks real. It looks like, yeah, something I'm not supposed to see. And, like, the you know, no one survives. And, right. like, that's the first movie I've ever seen. I didn't know that movies were allowed to do that. Right. Uh, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it, it's so unsympathetic to everyone and yeah. everything and uh it's just like yeah this is how this is what the end of the world is going to look like amen i yeah. you know i the, the way you describe night of the living dead is is the way that i encountered the original texas chainsaw massacre for the first time oh or, yeah which was like it was made around the same time it was made a couple of years later. i mean this looks too shitty for it to not be that's real right, that's yeah. right oh, oh, oh there's a grotesqueness about it which yeah. is like what the fuck is wrong with it's like a with all of you yeah, yeah absolutely um but 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 it's haunting because it's so grotesque and so violates mm-hmm. um, all the things that you expect. So I totally get that. Yeah. Hey, listen. If you uh, stuck around for all nine of these films or eight, as it were, as Caleb and I had two of the same, mm-hmm. uh, thanks so much. That means that you're with us for at least through five of these wonderful beers. You've listened to a lot of rambling, and we appreciate that. If you're not going on, that means that you're not a Patreon, and that's totally cool. We appreciate, you're not a patron, I should say, we totally appreciate your support. Thanks for everything. Uh, On the other side, we'll be talking in Drunk Enough about something infinitely interesting that you'll miss, but it's no big deal. Uh, Thanks so much for everything that you do. Listen, if you haven't followed us on Twitter at TheMix6 or on Facebook.com slash TheMix6, please do. Also, never forget to rate and review us on iTunes. That way we can move up that in uh, ever important iTunes list to experience to expose I should say more people to the mix six and by the time this is being posted we should be in the heat of the final round of the cage match oh my god we're gonna be re- yeah so y'all should be voting <laughs> that's right it's really gonna determine what we watch we really are our Nick Cage it's marathon. gonna be it's it, it might even be past the cage match at this point no it's, I think we're good we got one more and then this is well, it this yeah. will be the week of the cage the match. week of so the cage match get on Twitter so stay and, tuned and yeah that's right. Make your voices heard. So if you've been around but you're not going on, thanks so much for everything that we do, the, everything that you do. We love you so much, uh, and we appreciate your time, energy, and resources. And we'll see you on the other side. If you're sticking around, we're grabbing another beer, and we're on to beer six. We'll see you in just a second. Oh my gong, if you're still around, it means that you've listened to the whole episode and you're ready for beer six. Thank you so much. It means you're a patron at a minimum because you're listening to all of these things. So thank you so much for your time, your energy, and your resources. We appreciate it very much. We're here and drunk enough. And before we get going on that topic, Caleb needs to rate and review a motherfucking beer. Caleb, what you drinking? 
I am drinking at the suggestion of Noah Carden, Superbacker. Superbacker. Uh, he has suggested I drink New Holland Brewing's Dragon's Milk. That sounds delicious. It does sound delicious. It's a bourbon barrel-aged stout. Jesus. Up my alley. You're going to finish the night on a bourbon barrel-aged stout. And this is why Sarah is, like, medium crazy about you. You know what mm. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a lucky star. That's that a, a four? four for me. That's mm. a solid stout. I like it. Thank you, Noah. That is. Oh, that's good. Yeah, oh, I it's like subtle. That. Here, producer yeah, Ross, it's a subtle stout. You don't stouts go hard in the paint sometimes, and that's not the one, but it does enough to be distinctive. It has a nice chocolate chip taste to yeah, it. Yeah, and near the back end of the back that's of right. the throat. That's oh, right. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. delicious. Thank you, Noah. Worth, I like that. Worth noting that in this episode we have had a one, a couple threes, a four, and a five, which mm-hmm. is almost a perfect distribution on a bell curve. Which is bullshit. Which is bullshit. <laughs> because our topic in Drunk Enough is the myth of the bullshit bell curve. And we've referred to it multiple times knowing it's bullshit. MLG horn motherfuckers. I didn't have the app pulled up, and well, Ross will not add it in. He will not. Damn it. Well, now I can't add things in because you keep calling me out. <laughs> yeah, on it's me. really our fault. No, Blame it, the victims, it's Ross. A Sorry, Ross. <laughs> it's a running gag. You sicko. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um... I know you and I have talked about this before in relation, especially when you were in academia and doing tons, tons of research. All the fucking grading. Yes. And I know I've encountered it multiple times in education with this concept of the bell curve. And then I've also encountered in in research that almost exclusively just seemed repressed and thrown to the side is that the bell curve is bullshit and doesn't actually exist in nature. So um, let's talk about that. Let's get into it. Yeah. So, okay, so before we get into uh, kind of the bullshit that is the bell curve, let... let you probably uh, define the bell curve. Right, let right. me set the stage a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like for those of you that have not been in academia, because mm-hmm. you have managed to find your way doing more significant and or practical things... You don't understand, but as someone who spent a lot of time there, the, the bell curve is the idea that there is a perfect distribution of low, high, and middle performers. Mm-hmm. And in theory, the middle performers will make up the bulk of, of a curve, which looks like a bell, because the middle performers will take well, up... 50% of the people will perform perfectly average. That's right. That's right. And then you will take the 49%, divide that by half. Right. They will perform 49%. And you'll divide and out. And then 48, equally. divide again, 47. Right. Until like 1%, which is like I failed to sign my name on the test. That's right. And the 99th, 100 percentile, which is I am brilliant. I got everything right. That's right. Beautiful that kind mind. Of, yeah. kind of shit. I pointed the errors out in the test. Exactly. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so, so you might not think, well, the bell curve is just something which happens naturally. Let, let me tell you with, with, well, that's what standardized testing would want you to believe is that all human interaction falls on a bell curve. Let me tell you with much certainty as someone who has been, uh, an arbiter of grade giving, uh, in a number of settings, uh, for people who are much more important for entire departments or colleges that the bell curve, uh, We'll get into the naturalness of the bell curve. The bell curve is an expectation in many academic settings. And so in in no uncertain terms... That results are forced that's into right, that's more right. often than not. On, in no uncertain terms, on many occasions, by advisors, directors, uh, department heads, and colleges, um, I was asked to create a bell curve and to determine a grading scale or grade scale based on a bell curve. 
So figure out where your scores land and then adjust your scores accordingly to reserve 5% of the class ending up in the in the upper end, 5% in the lower end, and then the remaining 90, 90% spread amongst your average to less than and more than average. I mean, I've, I think you should mark to listeners, aside from the nefariousness of the idea of the bell curve in the first place, um, as a person that may have been in some form of education at once in your life, yes. listeners, you need to be very careful when your professor or teacher says they are grading on the curve. That's right. Because that could mean, like, the best person is now 100%, so the best person got 79%, so 79% is now 100%, and all your grades look better as a result, and then you're like, yay, thank you, teacher. Right. That's not actually grading on the curve. No. Actually, grading on the curve is... I can give out two A's. That's right. You're not it. That's right. Like, and it gets brutal. Right. Like, yeah. I, I think the belief that a curve somehow looks like a fucked up in yeah. or is, yeah. is not, it's not a curve at all. And so, um, you know, j- j- just to set some context for this discussion, the, the bell curve, it, when we say the myth of the bell curve, we're not talking about the myth that people grade on the bell curve. We're rather talking about the notion They do that, in two different that's ways. Right, that's right. We're talking which about, is a sign that the bell curve doesn't right, actually We're talking exist. about the notion that the bell curve is, that, that, that it happens naturally as a myth. In and no so, way, shape, or form. No, absolutely doesn't. So, <laughs> so having said that, you know, uh, Caleb, you and I both spent some time kind of interacting with this philosophy. Um, what for you are kind of the key issues with thinking about grades and, by extension, not so subtly, the distribution of intelligence or of student success in terms of this kind of ideal curve? Well, the bell curve uh, presupposes a number of things that don't exist in nature, like an apolitical space. So when you see people, and I'm, I'm going to give credit to the sort of uh, hard right side of the argument for for lack of believing in it right. first, but just to show that I understand their nature. Yeah. When you have um, arguments about uh, great inflation or millennial entitlement or participation trophy bullshit and stuff like that, a lot of it comments on the fact in that a B by many people is seen as a failure, right. even though it should not be, uh, in the fact that human psychology does not regard the bell curve as real, even though human intellect does. Right. Uh, and like we will think of it in terms of number, but we don't think of it in terms of their kids. So we will think, like, oh, the bell curve exists and is absolutely real when we grade something, and then our kid gets a C and we're like, fuck that. Yeah. No way. It's not possible. My kid can't be average in any way, shape, or form. And that way gets you, like, Great inflation because those parents have pressure, they mm-hmm. have voting power, and that affects teachers right. and their ability to stay employed. And so the bell curve is bullshit in that regard because it disregards political influence. Sure. And Marxist on the podcast, nothing disregards political mm, influence. Caleb is a Marxist drink. Weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, my God. God. God damn it. You went uh, for it. Yeah, we did for it. Yeah. Uh, so... That's my regard on like that hard right side of the argument, which I don't see as the problem side of the argument. Well, but but before you move too quickly yeah. right, away from that, let me say, so I've taught in both the public education and private education space. So I've yeah. taught at a private school. And let me tell you that the first uncomfortable interaction I had with administrators as a teacher was in a private school setting where a parent felt like their their child was unduly being evaluated at the C level, which given the nature of the bell curve would suggest... Mm. Most right, mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore, you know, I had violated some expectation because in a private school setting where people are paying money, 
uh, all of, all of the bell should end at like a B plus, right? The bell curve should be more like a, a steep incline and then a steep decline between a B yeah, plus. Private and a plus. school has value in the market for being this sort of hard node realism. I will tell you that's right. If you are there, because we're not elected, I I behold nothing to you. That's but right. as a result of needing tuition to stay kids in there, right? You are. Ipso facto, right. resulted to the exact opposite of that. Which you should, need to regard them as high. Which should, by nature, kind of dispel the myth of the naturally occurring bell curve because it yeah. changes the goalpost so significantly that it's not. If a bell I invested at all. this much in my kid being on the high end of the bell curve, they must be on the high end. Of that's the right. Bell curve. That's right. 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 Like it's, this, it's, it suggests yeah. the bell the curve is not naturally occurring. That's right. Yeah. 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 So. So. Uh, you know, as a point of reference, I would say not only have I kind of experienced the natural pressures of public education forcing the bell curve on me, I've also experienced the kind of like odd pressure of private education condensing the bell curve, which is to say if if both spectrums have wildly different interpretations of what a bell looks like, mm-hmm. maybe the curve is in and of itself not natural, uh, it naturally occurring. So I'm not going to disregard that as an influence because it is. Right. It does exist. But I don't think that's the reason bell curve fails. I don't think sure. like, capitalism has failed the bell curve yep. and that's how all human society works. Because I think it's a more fundamental failure because yep. I don't see the bell curve in nature. Right. Right. Absolutely. So what for you is kind of the more fundamental reason? Though? I think the bell's upside down. Mm-hmm. 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 I think you have less C's. Then you have hard F's and hard A's. Yeah. And I think the bell is absolutely upside down in human endeavor, especially correlated with human age. Hmm. So look, you're psychologically reinforced to go after things that give you sort of a dopamine reinforcement. Right. If you're good at it, you psychologically go after it. More. Right. If you're not good at it, you psychologically go after something else. Right. That's just like That's the basic principle of Darwinism right, right. for that regard. Right. There's, there's no middling there. So here's the thing. After a certain point, and I think it starts in high school, but I think it's definitely in effect in college. Right. You're specializing yeah. because, you know, that's how all of the economy exists and right. like the nature of capitalism. And here's the thing. If you're really good at something, you invest harder in it and you become even better at it. Yeah. And if you're really bad at something, you invest less in it. Yeah. And become really bad at it. Yeah. And the fact that the minimum number is the fact of people transitioning from bad to good is just sort of obvious to me. Yeah. And it is clearly represented in almost every educational statistic you see, you know, before you get doctors. Sure. And that you have a lot of A and B students. And you have a sad amount of D and F students. Yeah. But kids who are getting C's for degrees are notoriously rare. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the reality of it before you start monkeying with numbers and saying, well, this is an A now and that's an F now. And I can only add these. And that's an artificial construct compared to I gave these assignments. They performed them this well. I had this half do well, this half do extraordinarily bad, and this little bit do barely a middle on their way to transition. Yeah, yeah that's that's a really interesting take. Only only because the first time you when you said I think the bell is more like you, I thought no, but but then you started to explain yourself, uh, and it really resonated with me. So when I was teaching, which you know a couple of years back at this point, um, I was probably. You know, first I want to admit that I was like probably not a great educator in some ways, um, but that the kinds of questions that I would ask on exams weren't so much questions as they were prompts. Uh, Protagoras says choice is tragic. True or false? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then kind of assert that... You're in a rhetorical criticism class. That's right. 
your bullshit is what you're being graded on. That's right. That is a vague prompt without yeah. an objective answer, precisely because I want you to convince me that there is an objective. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What, what I'm looking for here is either you got the thing and you can articulate that you did or you didn't get the thing. And I want to be able to clearly identify that you didn't get the thing. Right? I don't give a shit what your opinion is so long as you back it up. That's right. But and so as I think about that, though, I don't think that you're that far off from what happened a lot of the time because mm-hmm. either you've picked up on the substance and you've been able to play the game or you've not picked up to the substance and you're clearly not able to play the game. There's not a whole lot of gray in there for me, which is either you're doing it or you're not doing it. And the gray would be the C, right? It would be the, I feel like you've done an okay job here. I could see some reasons why you kind of get it here, kind of get it there. The gray for me is you get it, but you can't express it yet. Right, right. And like I've been there educationally and I understand that. Right. My argument is that the willpower to move that way is rarer in human nature. Yeah. The willpower to start shitty at something and move towards better at something is rarer and, in fact, the rarest yeah. than rather being really shitty at it and being really excellent yeah. at it. Let me suggest – so uh, this is an interesting take on this for me, and I, and I kind of like it, especially since earlier I've made the comment that I don't think – I think the problem is that certainly in the private school setting, which is where I, I, you know, I worked for a couple of years – there was an assumption that the bell curve would look like a fucked up in that everyone would be at the higher end and the idea that you would be you know below the b plus level well if you want to talk pure statistics the fact that the bell curve moves all over the fucking place right is a sign that it's not real it's not real yeah like, yeah if it's point zero 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 one percent in your house right. for fucking uh diagnostic right. you know medical professionals right, right. that doesn't mean the yeah bell curves wrong right but now we move that down to a one percent and now the bell curves fucked up right it's too high the 50 percent is at a 78 percent or something like that like and that's the thing like it doesn't account for social progress it doesn't account for the flynn effect which is the fact that we've jumped iqs 10 points every decade since the fucking world war ii yeah which is like nonsense if the bell curve was real we shouldn't jump the ability to fucking learn uh, 10 points every fucking time on the Flynn effect. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, is, cause is that because of environmental factors like getting lead out of, uh, paint and water and, uh, better nutrition? Yes. But if that's yeah. the count, how do we, we've been examining the idea of statistics at a point where we could have a bell curve within the realm of possibility of all of those things happening. Mm. So like, that's the thing. Like if the bell curve is some like real, uh, social Darwinist natural occurrence, Maybe we shouldn't have invented the bell curve in the area of area of industry when we're like dumping lead into fucking everything we have and we up our IQ points after saying, Oh, maybe we shouldn't have lead in our fucking food and water and shit. Right. Like, yeah. So like there's any number of matters like statistically is not real. Yeah. But additionally, like from the anecdotics perspective, I have never seen the bell curve as right. a teacher. Have well, you? Um well, so that's a struggle for me, um, for a couple of reasons. So one is, yes, I, I have seen some naturally occurring. So I, I, I mean, I guess I should preface this by saying that one of the courses I taught at one of the institutions where I taught was a uniquely difficult class, which privileged those who paid specific attention to very specific things, which rewarded those who showed up and, I, and which punished those who didn't show I up. I should have caveated that. Yeah. Assuming the same level of investment. Right, right. So, like, if you're in a grad school course, I see the bell curve. Right. And I see it hard. Yeah. Because then it becomes down to, like, natural genetic ability, and the bell curve makes sense there. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is into it as much as they 
want to be into it. Everyone is equally invested. And that is a classroom situation that is so rare, it bears almost not talking about. Right. Um, well, but I have a different idea in mind here. But which is, okay, I'll say, yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Which is, so I, I, at two different universities, three different, two different universities in three different settings, I've taught what, what's considered a basic course, mm-hmm. which is a course that everyone either in the university or the major has to take. Yeah, you take, it's a gen ed. Yeah. It's a gen ed functionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in those instances, I have been surprised by what I would say is the existence of bell curve like patterns. I don't know that they're perfect bell curves, but you know, in a general education course requirement, you have some students who are by nature good students and they're going to get A's in everything they do because they're going to study hard. You have some students who by nature are more like me and you of a time who fuck you. This isn't beer pong, so I'm not paying attention. And then you've got some students who like you and me of a time are like, well, I'm going to college. So this is what I do. And that middle piece right there is a pretty big piece. So in the general, so so I guess to your point, in the both the general education setting, <clears throat> but also in the graduate setting, I have seen some bell curves uh, develop naturally. Now they're not perfect; they're they're a little bit slanted. And I think where things get a little bit hazy for me is in a in a setting where you would expect to see something like a bell curve. What I found was, and again, this is kind of my lens for grading things. I was never good at evaluating Bs. For me, either you got it and it was an A, you kind of got it, but you were missing some stuff and it was a C, or you didn't fucking get it at all and it was at the back half. But the, you kind of got it, but didn't clearly articulate it, I had a trouble The difference there. between a D and F is a difference between it being insulting. That's me. right. That's right. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and the difference between an A and a C for me is some magical difference in the ability to articulate what you probably get at a C but you articulated more clearly at an A. So I always told myself that I was evaluating fairly and honestly, did you or did you not get it? And if you got it, it was an A. Now, here's one thing that was different for me, and this is something that I experienced later as a teacher, and I'm really going to sound like one of the like old guys, like get off my lawn right now, but it seemed like, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm just saying that it seemed like this is very possibly true of, of, of my generation as a you know, middle school or high school or even college student, that there was an expectation by the time I started teaching that having done the minimum was an A, which totally changes the nature of the bell curve, right? Because then the question is, are you an A minus or an A And plus? now we're back to the sort of like Randy. And That's right. I paid a bunch of money. That's therefore right. my kid is an A kind of shit. And, and so th- those are the things that, for example, when I was teaching at a private school, got me in trouble. Well, yeah, but he did the assignment. Yeah, but he didn't do the assignment well. Well, yeah. Right. And that, and that kind of point of nuanced distinction. And, and that's the thing. Many parents, if you want to talk about entitlement generation, the one regard I can say in that, the idea that like there's a distinction between doing it and mm-hmm. doing it well mm-hmm blowing people's minds is where that fucking criticism is located, like right in that space. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so that for me, um, that was probably the greatest struggle that I've encountered with the bear, bell curve, other than kind of the forced, no, 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 no. We will find... All human a, beings fit into this, in, in whether a, you believe it or not. Right. In a class of 100, we will find 75 Cs, and then we will find three A pluses, you know, which I've certainly encountered, and it was an uncomfortable situation. I'm not proud of it. It is what it is. These things happen. Um, it's 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 the the forced truncation of the bell curve because of expectation or capital investment. For me, what's the more difficult thing to interact with in some ways? And here's the thing. Um, 
the bell curve, not to overly complicate this thing, but my third point, right. aside from like the sort of great inflation point and the idea that like humanity doesn't work this way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in terms of psychological engagement, is the generational point. And it takes a long – and I'm just starting to see that as a teacher. Sure. The generational point. If the idea is that all human behavior falls on a bell curve and that you are every single class of human being, every single grade or every single time you are doing in this enforcement of this bell curve remains consistent, that disregards the acknowledgement that human beings come in waves and that waves have differing qualities. Right. You can have a bad fucking year yeah. teaching college, mm-hmm. teaching high school teaching middle school, teaching elementary, you can have years in which the bell curve is remarkably lower beneath sure. the average. And you can have years in which it's like, holy shit, where did these kids come from? Yeah. They're all killing it. Yeah. And the fact that I'm trying to impose a bell curve as if it exists independent of history, this bell curve significant unto a year, Rather, not significant unto the entire performance of human behavior yeah. in this realm yeah. on this significant year of kids. And it's tragic even when I do that because, like, the bell curve can help kids right. who are bell ends, yeah. lower ends. That's right. It can help those kids that are very, but the fact that I'm taking these kids that are high achievers, right. high achievers by any metric, right. and I'm fucking reducing them down to B's and C's by a bell curve yeah. that doesn't exist because their generation right. is if we're taking all human achievement including breeding uh, on a higher end of the spectrum Amen. yeah that is uh, false yeah and it's really harmful it's absurd them. even yeah yeah, yeah I, mean, absurd. I, I yeah. think it's I think it's oppressive if we're gonna accept the right. bell curve universally right. you have to accept it universally across time and right. you have to accept that you are a mortal and don't see all of time totally agree and you're gonna get some bad generations of right. shit right and like so it's it's false on every level and yet and yet that we we have this this one listener this incredible super listener who has made for us a, and yet I'm desperate to stay on that bell curve. a plot of our beer ratings and, and yet I'm desperate to stay on that bell curve and I think if I'm correct and I could be wrong and please correct me super listener I, I think it was an originally released after 10 or 11 episodes and he's we lo- keeping up with it yeah no 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 he's and doing we, a solid job and we looked back at it and it was almost a perfect distribution and we high fived of ter- in terms of bell curve about it in our beer ratings. And so I get that that, it, that there is something, as much as you and I both disagree with the idea that this should show up naturally, I also get that uh, it shows up naturally because there is something about the nature of classification and rating, which for us as humans, at least you and I, suggests that the greatest of the great should get a special subclass and the worst of the worst should get a special subclass. It's a real chicken or the egg problem. And everything in the middle yeah, should point. get an everything in the middle type classification in that over time... The math there does bear out. And so I understand how these things show up. What, what, what I'm saying, and I think what we are saying, is that in academic settings, which are tangible material effects on children, adults, semi-adults, um, the imposition of the bell curve is often more meaningful, right or wrong, than the emergence of the bell curve and the belief that we should evaluate one's value on the bell curve is is bullshit. Um, some some people just do, and some people just don't. Here's the thing: I've had moments at the wine center or at McAdoodles where I'm like, liquor we've stores. Had, we've had too many fives, right? 
I need to buy some shit. Yeah, some real trash. And how is that not artificial? Right. Like, I've resisted that impulse. Amen. As I try and resist that impulse grading. Right. Uh, by rubrics, by nameless grading, by yeah. grading blind, right. by any number of methods that you learned if you're a professional educator. Yeah. And I've resisted it throughout, and I've resisted it on this podcast. But the fact of the matter is the impulse is there. That's right. And I have to acknowledge the impulse is there. And I have to acknowledge the impulse maybe affected the process. That's right. We we have had conversations in between segments on this show mm-hmm. about pulling beers that we think are going to be exceptional because we don't want to rate fives back to back. But there is a very clear moment where we rate a five and then rate another five or we don't rate fives at all in a show. I mean – and here's the thing. You can either address the market as being like this divine institutor, the invisible hand, go hard in the economic paint of like saying like the market is the grand determiner of things. Or you can go with the bell curve, but you can't go both. That's right. That's absolutely right. Because the market doesn't acknowledge a right. bell curve. It is either the an market, invisible hand or it is an, or it is an, uh, an, an invaluable The market acknowledges hand. exceptional That's or right. nothing. That's right. And, and yeah, so like that's the thing. You can't have both. That's right. So the bell curve's bullshit from any perspective. That's right. Having said all of that, if you stuck around for whatever this was, oh my God, God bless you. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us for whatever this amount of time was. We appreciate it so much. It means that you are a patron at some level and we really cannot tell you how much we appreciate that. We think and we hope we try to every time we get to talk to you. Um, if you've been listening, make sure that you follow us on Twitter as well at the mix six or on Facebook, facebook.com slash the mix six. We have a group and a page. We'd be happy if you got on both as always, if you haven't rated or reviewed on iTunes, please do. It helps us move up the list. And if we move up the list, more people get the mix six. And if more people get the mix six, everybody gets more mix six. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, you're probably knee deep into the cage match. We're nearing the end and about to. Serve up the Nick Cage overlords to ourselves. Thank you so much. And uh, this was 102 beers. This is 102 beers that we're now on. Thank you for that. As a podcast. We owe that to you. If in some way. 102 you, beer high. 102. <laughs> if, if in some way you have supported us in that endeavor, and clearly you have if you're a patron, thank you so much. 102 is significant for the same way the bell curve is significant. Amen. In that we've decided it is, and so we're just going to say it is. Right. The bell curve is for me, it, it is a J.J. Abrams lost of, <laughs> of academic endeavors is how I feel about it. There's mystery in here because we say there the, is. The, God, I wonder if there's a bell curve of lost episodes between good and bad. There absolutely are. The yeah. smoke monster exists because the smoke monster exists. That's how I feel about the bear <laughs> co- bell curve. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate everything that you do for us. We do this for you guys. Once again, if you've been listening, I'm Spencer. I'm Caleb. That's producer Ross. Hello. And we'll see you on the other side. Thanks, everybody.